Amen. Well, good morning. And uh, how is everybody this morning? Good, good. Well, my name is Pastor Joshua, and uh, it's great to have everybody at uh, church this morning. And uh, a little different today. I got a big uh, aircraft carrier in front of me. Staying on it means I feel like I could fly off this sucker. You know what I'm saying? And I'm wearing a tie this morning, and I got a bunch of notes. And I, I don't know, I'm really nervous. This sermon's really different. I got all this stuff because I've got a lot of quotes today, and so I don't know how that's going to go. And I told Sherry last night, she's like, how's the sermon coming? I was like, hi. Ah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, all I know is I got a quote in here from Fellowship of the Rings with Frodo and Gandalf, and typically when I do that in a sermon, it's not going to go very well, but we will talk about Jesus, so... Uh, there you go. But we're starting our Christmas series. A couple of things uh, before. Boy, I, I like this thing, though. I can put my water right there. That's really nifty. This has got a lot of nice features. Now, it's too bad I'm not taller, though. You know, I feel like, I feel like all you can see is my hair. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see how this works out. You guys can, you can write me notes and tell me if you like it or not. I don't know. It's very silver. Uh, but uh, listen, come, come to the meeting tonight. We, we need a quorum. We need enough of our members, all right? We got a budget to pass. Uh, that means that Isaac and I really want to get paid this next year. Amen? And uh, well, maybe Isaac doesn't. He might be more godly than I do. But I want to get paid a salary this next year. Come and vote. Uh, come and vote. And, but here's the deal. If you're not a member, you're welcome to come as well. I mean, it's not the most exciting meeting you will ever be to. Uh, praise God, we are not one of those kind of churches where you have an annual meeting and people throw things at each other. You know what I mean? At least it hasn't happened yet. I hope it doesn't happen tonight. Uh, but uh, it's, it's good. So it's an open meeting to anybody who wants to come and uh, meet some of the new people who are going to be on the boards, the administration board and uh, deacons and deaconesses and stuff like that. So it's a good opportunity for you to kind of know who and what's going on. So anyways, uh, you're, everybody is welcome. And I want you to know that. But members, please really do come. Uh, it's, it's a really great thing. So here's what we're going to do. We're doing a new series of sermons. I've got a lot of notes and a lot of quotes. By the way, if if you ever want the copy of my notes of any sermon, whether I use notes on a Sunday or not, I do have notes that I type up. And if you want my notes, you email me and I'll send them right to you. I mean, I don't know if you'll make any sense out of them. But like when I have a lot of quotes in a sermon, uh, you might like, hey, I want those quotes. And I always have in my notes, I have the sources and what pages and what the book is and such like that. So, uh, so please feel free to request whatever you, you want to. But this morning we're starting a series called In the Names of Jesus. And um, uh, we're looking at passages that talk about the first advent of Jesus. And in those passages, there's lots of names for Jesus. And the first passage I want to look at is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. If you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, we do have slides for this scripture reading. And maybe this morning, uh, since I've got a lot of notes and I'm wearing a tie and I might put you to sleep today, let's stand up as we read scripture, your last moments of being awake this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, it, it's starting in verse 1. Great, one of the great prophecies. Imagine uh, 600 and some years before the birth of Christ, this prophecy from Isaiah in the Old Testament. But Isaiah chapter 9, and starting in verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We just, re- we just sang a song about that, didn't we? Uh, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping tramping warrior in, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born Uh, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace let me pray god i i desperately um want to communicate the reality of who you are in Christ. I, I really, I want to do a good job today. I want it to make sense and I want it to, to connect uh, with our lives. But I, I'm not qualified. You're going to have to help me. You're going to have to do the work this morning as always. Uh, The flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit who gives life. Uh, Human eloquence is not sufficient to communicate divine excellence. And so we need your Holy Spirit. And I I need your help. And I need you to take foolish words and cultivate wisdom in our heart as we worship you. So I'm praying that you'll help me to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We believe something really crazy. It's just a really radical idea. And the really radical idea is that we believe that the key to happiness in life is knowing God. Christians have always read the Bible in terms of that the secret to wisdom, the secret to contentment, the secret to fulfillment, happiness, joy, is knowing God. And I was rereading uh, a very famous book, kind of a Christian book, uh, written by John Calvin. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's this massive tome of a book. The, the, it's like two volumes, my set is, that I'm reading. It's like this huge book, massive, theological, deep, controversial in some places. I mean, really, really, really big book. But at the very beginning of the book, almost in the opening sentences of the book, he writes these words. This is what John Calvin said. He said, true and sound wisdom consist of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. He's basically saying if you want to be a wise person and complete, what you need to know is you need to know God and know yourself. Uh, Recently, uh, within the last year, I reread a book uh, by Augustine called The City of God. And he said this. This might be more applicable during the Christmas season. So take this home with you. But Augustine said, 
for earthly riches do not make either us or our children happy. Can I get an amen? Dude said that back in the 4th century. It's still true in the 21st, isn't it? They will either be lost while we are still alive or will pass after our death to someone we do not know or even to someone we do not want to have it. Rather, it is God who makes us happy, for he is the true wealth of the mind. If you want to be rich, see, if you want to be complete, guess what? You don't have to go purchase anything, do you? You don't need an accumulation of things. You need to know God. In a relationship with God, this is the point he's making. But, of course, I mean, look. I could go on, I could quote Jonathan Edwards, I could quote all kinds of theologians, uh, but the, the question is, is this biblical? Is this, is this idea of knowing God for our happiness and our complete, is, is the idea of, of knowing God, the true wealth of our mind, is that a biblical idea? And it is. In fact, if we were a traditional church, which based on the pulpit and the tie, we might be becoming a traditional church. But to give you an Old Testament and New Testament scripture reading this morning on this very idea of knowing God, let me start with the New Testament. Jesus said this in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus said, you want eternal life? You want life in abundance? Know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I mean, that, look, this is the purpose of the first advent of Christ. This is the purpose of Christmas. This is the meaning behind the coming of Christ. It's, it's not so that we can find ourselves more valuable. It's so that we might value God more because he comes close to us and we get to know him through Christ. We get to see him. Jesus is the revelation of God so that we can know God. This is the key to life, is knowing God. Jeremiah said it in the Old Testament. He said in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We begin to understand that knowing God is God's will for our life. And knowing God is the secret to wisdom and completeness and justice and all of the things that we all long for. God is not only the giver of good gifts, he is the gift. Of our life, and to know Him is great. These verses and ideas point to the relationship that God is wanting to develop in our life. God did not come into our world as a contractor or as an employer looking to hire us. God did not come into this world to do a job performance on our life. God did not come into this world to see how religious we might be. God came into this world to adopt us as his sons and daughters so that we might know him and treasure him and have a relationship with him. This is the meaning of Jesus. 
Now, so much of what's wrong with the church and Christianity is that we begin to think that God is like a utilitarian contractor, that he's looking to use us for some other practical purpose. Understand this, God is love, and God wants a relationship with us, and so he comes in pursuit of us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why, to give you another quote, are you loving these? These quotes are good, aren't they? Now that I'm saying them up here, I'm like, I'm glad I got these quotes. J.I. Packer wrote in his great book, highly recommend it, Knowing God. He said, knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. And that's what's happening in our very text, the text we just read. You, you, you read about people rejoicing. You read about, uh, about in, the, the people's increase in joy. They rejoice before you, God. They, they rejoice. They are glad in verse 3. They have been set free from darkness into the light of the knowledge of God in this child that is born. It's a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. That's what Isaiah is about. That's what Christ is about. That's what the names of Jesus is all about. To calculate thrill in our heart as we know God through Christ. Now, here's the two problems with this. We got got problems. First of all, our first problem is, is if we're secular or if we're unchurched or we're irreligious, right? And... And if you're here and you're investigating, you don't take God too seriously. You don't want to go overboard with God. You don't want it to be like the central thing. Maybe he's just a a peripheral idea. I want you to know, so glad you're here. And I remember in my own life, although I was young at the time, I remember that God was like, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do on my priority list, like way down here, right? That there seemed to be so many other important things. And in our world, secular folks... Unchurched people really doubt and are skeptical whether they can really know God. Now, people in our culture who are secular, that they believe they can be spiritual, but they really doubt whether they can know a personal God, the God of the universe, the one God over all people who created all things. They doubt this very much. And so, uh, uh, you, know, what, you know, one of the things that, that I really, I desire to pastor a church uh, where people who have those doubts and want to investigate this very idea are welcome to our church, amen? And people can come and they can, they can investigate and they can say, you know, I doubt it. I, I want people to come to me and say, I doubt this. So prove me wrong. Give me what I need to know for me to believe what you're trying to tell me, that you can know God in such a way that it's thrilling and it's real and he's personal and, and he is to us a real person and a real relationship in our life. That's why Jesus came, is, is to turn us around. And, and, and so if we're secular, uh, we doubt that God can be known. But here's our other problem. If we're churched. As churched people, we doubt that God can be enjoyed. We doubt, as religious people, whether a relationship with God can be an exciting or thing that brings happiness into our life. We wonder if all God really wants is just obedience. Isn't it true that all God wants is me to be obedient? And the truth is, is that what Jesus tells us and what his names will reveal to us over this series is that that Jesus came to remind us churched people, us religious background people, that you can have a relationship with God that is thrilling. 
that is, that is exciting, that, that is joy increasing, that is, that is wealth in the mind dominating, that's what this is about. You see, you and I, we really struggle with this whole idea of relationship. There's a part of us even that we want God to be a utilitarian God. We want him to come down to hire us to do a job for him as like an employer. We want him to do that because that's so much easier on the mind, isn't it? And yet, it leaves us empty if that's the religion that we have. God wants a relationship with us, and he wants it to thrill our hearts. Now, here's the good news. The good news is this, that in knowing God in a thrilling way does not require us to exert great energy. It does not, it does not demand that we do some kind of religious gymnastics or to stretch ourselves too far. In fact, J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, now watch this, this is the key. He says this in his book, Knowing God, he says, The quality and the extent to our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. When we meet, our part is to give them our attention and our interest, to show them goodwill, to open up in a friendly way from our side. From that point, however, it is they, not we, who decide whether we are to know them or not. And here's what J.I. Packer is saying. He's like, you know what? Here's the secret to knowing God. It is letting God reveal himself to you and you stopping and surrendering and just saying, okay, God, you want me to know you? You're going to have to do the hard work because relationship is built on people wanting to be known. Isn't that true? I mean, you can say, you know, I really want to know Pastor Josh, but if I'm not open to letting you know me, guess what? You're never going to know me, which is probably a pretty good thing, but... If I want to know you, and I, I, I knock on your door, and you don't open it up. I, 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 I honk my horn in your driveway, and you never come out. I, I call you on the phone, and you never pick up. I send you an email, and you never reply back. You see, I can't ever know you unless you reply back, unless you do the hard work of being known. And that is what Jesus' coming is about. It's about God saying, I am going to do the hard work so that you can know me. So don't put unnecessary prayer. Don't say, oh, I don't know God in a thrilling way. I already feel guilty. I haven't done enough hard work. Dude, Jesus... Sorry, I said dude. I'm wearing a tie. I don't know why I would say dude while I'm wearing a tie. God says, let me do the work. Just welcome me. Just, Just be open. Just be open to the possibility of knowing me in a way that is calculated to thrilling your heart. And so our question is not how can we know God in a thrilling way. The question is how does God approach us so that we can know him in a thrilling way? What is his process? And that is what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah, when we come to this passage, and if you have a Bible, please do grab it if you don't. I don't know what slides I have and what I don't. I'm really lost on what's going to be up on the screen. But here's the reality. The reality is is that Isaiah is prophesying how God approaches and invades uh, people's lives who don't want to know him. And the first thing that God does 
to get us to know him in a thrilling way is actually to show us ourselves, not as we want ourselves to be, but as we really are. And he shows us ourselves as broken, all right, as broken. And when we come to Isaiah, and I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 8 and give you the context of these names of Jesus that we just read. But the context of, of this passage is the brokenness of God's people. And what God had said through Isaiah, now I'm going to give you a little bit of history, so quotes to history. Here we go. Y'all ready for history? Say, I love history. I love it. It's so, you know, and it was wonderful. Okay, here's history for you. Isaiah comes to the nation of Israel, and he says, here's what God is going to do. You all have sinned. You have jacked it up really bad. As you've rebelled against God, you've run against him, and because you've rebelled and you've refused to repent of your sin, God is going to allow the Assyrian army to invade you, and this invasion of the Assyrian army will be like a great flood overwhelming the banks of a river. It will come suddenly. It will be, it will be, like, it will be like the labor pain comes upon a woman. One day a woman's walking along and she's pregnant and she's fine. And the next minute she knows she's in deep pain through labor. That's what this invasion is going to be like. And Isaiah's like, you as a nation are going to get jacked by the Assyrian army because you've sinned against God. And the Assyrian king and all his glory and all his hordes of of armies are going to come and overwhelm and destroy you. And great anguish and great affliction will come upon you. That's what's going to happen. But here's the thing. What Isaiah goes on to say is that the far deeper darkness is not brought on by an invasion by an army. The far deeper darkness is the inward condition of the nation as this happened. What what Isaiah says is that God allows this Assyrian uh, uh, invasion to be a revelation of the inward condition of people's hearts. Because as people go through affliction, as people go through difficulty, guess what? The true self comes to the outside. Isn't that true with your life? I hate that about myself. If I could just have a good day every day, nobody would know what my weaknesses are. Isn't that right? And what happens is God's like, this really isn't about a historic army taking over your nation. This is about how you respond in the midst of that invasion. And what God wants them to see is how really corrupted they really are. And so he says, now let me read some verses to you. He says in Isaiah 8, verse 19. This invasion has happened, Isaiah's talking about it, and people, it's devastating. I mean, take 9-11 and multiply it a a million times, and that's what Israel goes through. But here is how the people respond, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teeth? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. Now, here it is. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, here's what Isaiah is saying. He's like, this invasion happens. And what did you people do when you went through that difficult time? 
you went to mediums. You went to go talk. You went to go talk to the dead and not to God. You went to go do weird spiritual things that are completely contrary to what you know about the one true God. You didn't even go to God and beg him to reveal himself to you. You went to false gods. You exchanged the glory of God for bad gods and for idols. And not only that, but when you got hungry, when you no longer had, you know, Aldi anymore because it got jacked by the Assyrian army. When you no longer had Walmart anymore. When you no longer had Black Friday shopping sales anymore. When you no longer had the nice Christmas sweaters with the big bird on it. You know what I'm saying? Y'all know what I'm talking Christmas sweaters? Y'all, y'all try it? I'm still communicating, right? And what happened is, is you looked up at God and you said, forget you, God. How dare you? And what happened, as our text says in Isaiah 9, it says that people, get this, walked in darkness. What that means is that walking in darkness is a deliberate, willful, I love the darkness and not the light. I, I, love, I love rebellion more than I love righteousness. I love turning my back more than I love turning my face upward to God in a disposition of relationship. I love the darkness. But the truth is, is that it leads to bondage. You see, this love of darkness, this willful rebellion, this is the revelation that God gives to us. The way God leads us to a thrilling relationship actually begins with telling us and revealing to us the real problem of our heart. And the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And you know what we think? See, we think in our heads. This is, this is how crazy we are. This is how crazy I am. Let me put this on me. I'm wearing a tie. I can take it. The problem with me is that I think happiness exists outside of me. I think if I can just fix this, if I could have, you know, a nice environment and if everything on the outside and people outside of me would just behave and if I would just do the right thing outwardly, then everything would be fine. And you know what God is saying? God is saying, what you have is an impossible situation because your problem is in your heart. It's in your identity. It's in, your, it's in who you are. And that's going to require a miracle to fix. That ain't something you can go buy something for. That's something that's going to have to be given to you in a miracle. And I'm reminded, of course, of the book, The Fellowship of the Rings. I'm reminded of the great author, J.R.R. Tolkien. And he talks about this very problem in this narrative of the story of Frodo and Gandalf. And Gandalf is explaining at the beginning of this book to Frodo, he's telling him why Gollum, how many of y'all know who Gollum is? Gollum is the guy that found, he's the little hobbit that found the ring and then went into the misty mountains and hid out in the, in the darkness. And, and the ring began to possess him and the ring began to take over his mind and the ring began to take over his heart. And he thought he possessed the ring, but the ring actually possessed him and and. So Gandalf is explaining this to Frodo, and Frodo's having a hard time understanding it, right? And here is what Gandalf says about Gollum, who has possessed this ring. He says here, and I quote from the book, he says, Gandalf does, he says that Gollum was altogether wretched. He hated the dark, and he hated the light more. He hated everything, and the ring most of all. 
What do you mean, said Frodo? Surely the ring was his precious and the only thing he cared for. But if he hated it, why didn't he get rid of it? Or go away and leave it? You ought to begin to understand, Frodo. After all you've heard, said Gandalf, he hated it and he loved it. As he hated and loved himself, he could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. And that, you're like, what's that mean? That is the human condition. And you know where you guys have seen that? If you have anybody in your family who struggle with addiction, maybe you've struggled with addiction, alcoholism, drug addiction, addiction to gambling. And you know what happens, what we do? is we get addicted and compulsive about things, and we begin to hate it, but we can't stop. You see? And yet, yet we hate it, but we can't stop. And anybody who brings a solution, we hate them for bringing the solution, but we, but we love it and we hate it. And we're willing to cross great deserts for a drink, but we can barely cross a living room to our family because we've become possessed by the darkness. And we hate the darkness, but we really hate the light. And really the truth is we hate ourselves and we hate these compulsions. You see, you can see it in somebody who has an addiction. But even those who don't have these big, fancy addictions, we all have this problem on some level, don't we? We're in bondage. We're stuck. It's not just anguish. It's the gloom of anguish, Isaiah says. It's the gloom. And you're stuck. You're stuck in the misty mountains, hiding from the light. You love the darkness, but you hate it. But you hate the light more than anything. And you ultimately hate Yourself. Paul Tripp says, Our greatest need exists inside of us, not outside. There is nothing that we need more than God's ongoing work of redemption. And the application, now here's the application. The only people who get to have a thrilling relationship with God is not those who can fix themselves, but those who finally come to the place to say, I can't fix myself. The only people that don't get to know God, that miss out on a thrilling relationship with God and with Jesus and a deep understanding of the gospel, the only people who don't finally get it are religious people who think that they're not that bad after all. Who think I'm not as bad as the alcoholic. I'm not as bad as the person out there in the big bad secular world. I'm really not that bad off. And it's those who can't know God in a thrilling way. Hear me now. It's not until we come to the end of ourselves and all of our false human rehabilitation systems, whether secular or religious, all of our formulas that we try to do, oh, God, I got it, God, I'll fix myself. I'll get this thing figured out. I know how to do it. And you know what God is saying? You're stuck, man. You're stuck in the darkness. And the only way you're going to come to the light is if I give it to you. You're completely dependent upon me. It's not like you're 99% dependent upon me and you get to do 1%. You are 100 to 100. 110% dependent upon my grace to have a thrilling relationship. Come to the end of yourself. Because you couldn't get rid of that ring if you had to. That ring would destroy you, take away everything, and you still will keep it until God comes. You see, the only thing left for us to do is to stop, to reject all forms of human re rehabilitation because they won't work. And to surrender to God. God has come to replace our darkness with his light. 
our death with his life, our ignorance with his knowledge, our sin with his salvation, our despair with his joy, our limitedness with his abundance. God has come to provide salvation in the widest sense, shining upon us to bring about a reversal of our condition of darkness. Our feelings of emptiness, he wants to replace with feelings of fullness. Our burden of brokenness, he wants to give us in in its place our freedom of peace. He wants to take our defeat in battle after battle and provide for us a victorious life in Christ. That is what Jesus came to do. And all you you and I have to do is just go, I'm ready to exchange it. Here you go, God. I can't do anything with it. Now give me everything you have. Bring it on, man. Bring the full load. I know I'm not worthy of it. I know I haven't deserved it. But you came so that I could have it. You came down. Because I could never go up. I don't even want to go up. I'm institutionalized in darkness. Bring your light. Not only light outside, but bring the light of love into my heart. The first thing God does to reveal, listen, he reveals the problem of the heart. And the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And so that, now, if you get that, then you can get this next part. That was my introduction. Here's my sermon. I mean, here it comes. Are you ready? I mean, this is it. I mean, if you can understand that part, then you can understand the second thing he does. But understand, these go together. The second thing he does is he reveals the person of our deliverance. So once he reveals to us the knowledge of our brokenness, he reveals to us the person of our deliverance. And so we come now to our text. Go to Isaiah 9 and verse 6. And let's look. Now, what we're going to do with this series is we're going to go through all these names for Jesus, right? And, and, and here is the first set of names that we're going to go through. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Now watch this. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, before I go to the names, let me explain a couple things. First of all, it is shocking, is it not, that God's provision for light for the nation and for all people caught in bondage is a child. How many of y'all find that shocking? I think it's kind of shocking. And I think it's supposed to be shocking. I think what Isaiah, the way Isaiah understands it before Christ, because it's still a mystery. The incarnation is a mystery to Isaiah. And I think for Isaiah, what he's saying is, Isaiah's saying, don't you see how big and important and self-important everybody is? Don't you look around and you see leaders and people, and they're so like, look at me, look at how strong I am. Look at these warriors, look at these nations, look at these presidents and emperors, look at, look at these kings and princes, look at how self-important and how strong, and they've been working out every day, and they've got muscles, and they're, they're cut, and they're ripped, and they can do great things. And we look at them, and we go, I am so impressed by those leaders, I'm I'm so impressed by those men. And God's solution to defeat all of them is a child. And you know what the point is? This whole delivering us thing is so easy for God. This is so easy. Do you know that? It's not even hard for him to deliver you. God doesn't look at your problem and go, oh, my, that is, wow, a mess. Wow, they stink. Wow. Like, like I would rather change a diaper. I won't do that in the second service. That didn't work. 
that won't work. Like, like God can deliver us through a child. There's a movie coming out by Ridley Scott on Exodus and Moses. How many of y'all are going to go see that? I'm, I'm going to go see it. I think I'm going to go see it. But already in the reviews, it hasn't come out in theaters, but there's been reviews. And the reviews have revealed that what Ridley Scott does with the, flame, with the burning bush is really controversial. And Christians are already up. I mean, Christians are like, how dare he do that? But what he does is he takes a burning bush, the burning bush scene where Moses is before the burning bush. You know what I mean? And the burning bush, somehow, the voice of a child is used to, to be the voice of God. And we're all like, did did really Scott not see the Ten Commandments? Did he totally miss that movie? Did he not realize that God's voice sounds like Charlton Heston through a, a, a boom, boom, you know, thing? Like, I am God. I am the Holy and Mighty One, Moses. And I will slap your knee and you will live. I don't think that was the line, but... <laughs> right? So here's really Scott, and he's got like a little British kid going, I am the Lord. You know what I'm saying? And you will set my people free. And Christians are like, how dare he? But here's the thing. I started thinking about this theologically, and it's not too far off. For to us, a child is born. And think about Elijah. Remember when Elijah was all depressed and he was like running from God and he's like, I need to hear from God. I don't know. I'm so scared. And he had just like done this great thing and he's hiding out. And God's like, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And God was not revealed in the mighty whirlwind, was he? He was not revealed in the big, big, oh, I am God. Let me show you how strong. Let me show you my muscles. God was in the still, small voice. And I'm so encouraged by this because, you know, when I think about my bondage, when I think about my golem-type tendencies, my love of the darkness rather than the love of the light, when I think about some of my issues of compulsive thoughts and stream of consciousness that is not tracking with God, and I, I think it seems so big, it seems so impossible that I could possibly come out of my darkness into light, God reminds me, this is really easy for me. I know it's impossible for you, but nothing is impossible for me. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Give me your life because I can deliver you through the promised child. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. Here in this child is our deliverance. Because God doesn't have to be self-important. He can just be God and set us free. And so when we understand that, we look at these names, and these names come at us. And what I want to say about these names today for our purposes is I want to say that these names are, they remind us of two realities about God in Christ. The first reality is the supremacy of God in Christ. God is supreme. You see these in names of supremacy. You see, he says that uh, here in verse 6, he says that God is wonderful, that, that, that Christ is wonderful, that Christ is mighty, that Christ is the everlasting, eternal God, that Christ is the prince or the king. That's, those are titles of supremacy. But not only is he supreme, he is sufficient. Because not only is, is Christ mighty, 
He is counselor. He's sufficient for our needs. He can lead us and speak to us. He can be our shepherd. We can be a sheep. He, can, he knows how life works. He's sufficient for all things in life. He is God. He is Father. He is sufficient in being tender and, and leading us and training us and, and developing us as a father does. He is peace because he's sufficient to, to destroy all disturbing powers in our life, all peace-destroying powers in our life. Uh, Christ is sufficient to destroy all of them, not some of them. He is completely sufficient for all of our life. He is completely supreme over all reality. That is Christ. That is who he is. And so when we come to him, we come to him as supreme because he's worthy of our worship. But we also come to him as sufficient because he is able to deliver us. This is who God is in Christ. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So let's go through these names really quickly, okay? And God reveals the person of our deliverance. Now, what it says here is it says in verse 6, he shall be called... The, the way the Hebrew is, it's actually he is called. He is called, and he's called by those who experience him. It's almost like he's confessed. As anybody who knows Jesus experiences him as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is the confession. We have come out of darkness into light, and it's because of this person. And this person, who is Jesus, is number one, wonderful counselor. Let's see how many of these names we can get through today. First of all, wonderful counselor. Uh, it's broken down into two words. Uh, first is wonderful, and that comes from a Hebrew word, pele. I think of the soccer player when I think of that word, Wonderful. Right, Pele. And this root was used to describe miracles in the wilderness that only God could do. From the parting of the Red Sea to the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, all of those were considered wonders or wonderful. And Jesus is divine, isn't he? He is not only child, not only is he fully human as a child, but he is God in terms of he is a wonder. He is the power of God. He is the wonderful God. His name is wonderful. In fact, in Judges chapter 13 and verses 17 through 19, the angel of the Lord reveals himself to Manoah. And uh, Manoah uh, uh, experiences this angel of the Lord, who I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ. But here's, what, here's how it reads. It says, And Manoah said to the angel, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And so what that text is saying is that the angel of the Lord was divine. I believe that was Christ before Christ came. The pre-incarnate Christ revealed himself as an angel. And he said, my name is wonderful. And that, automatically they were like, that is God. Because only God is wonderful. Only God can work wonders. And so when Jesus came, it's like God came to us. 
Uh, Sometimes we doubt the quality of Jesus who gives us counsel. We doubt the relevance of God when uh, Jesus speaks to us in his word. But when we remember that he is the wonder God, he is wonderful in counsel, meaning that he is a counselor who is God, then we are able to bow before his word and to let him lead us in our life. Um, And so that's who Jesus is. He is the wonderful counselor. Um, I need Jesus to be the light in terms of wisdom. I need Jesus to be God who brings counsel to my life um, so that that he will walk with me and be a wonder to my heart and wisdom for my life. The truth that renews my mind and the wisdom that guides my feet, I need Jesus to be that. You know, I'll tell you guys something, and I'm sure you guys feel like this too at times. I don't feel qualified for the things that God puts before me. Do you? I don't. I don't feel qualified to be your pastor. I don't feel qualified to, to be a preacher. I don't feel qualified. And that's not like false humility. Like, like seriously. Like I seriously wonder whether I am capable of doing some of the things that God puts before me. I don't feel like I'm capable of being a leader. I don't feel like I'm capable of doing all kinds of things. And I have to give these things to God. And I bet you you've had moments like that too, haven't you? And you go, man, I just like... Like, I need some counsel and wisdom, and I need, some, I, need, I need a light for my path, and I need to know what to do next, and I need to know, I need to know what my purpose is, and I need to know what, 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 what comes next. And when Jesus comes, he comes to be a wonderful counselor to lead us and guide us. And first, he leads us as, as a counselor. He leads us out of sin, out of bondage, out of our dark caves of darkness. He leads us away from sin. And he gives us wisdom in that way. And then he shows us and empowers us for the things that he's equipped us to do. I've come to find out that God doesn't give us things that we can do in our own strength. He gives us things that that we have to depend upon him to do. And let me tell you about your life. If you're only doing the things that only you can do, then you might not be walking in the will of God. Isn't that right? I'm going to take a drink while you all think about that. Because I'm really thirsty. And it's 10-10, which means I need to wrap this up. He is wonderful counselor. Here's the second thing. Jesus is mighty God. That word mighty uh, comes from a word that means hero. Uh, he is the hero God. Uh, the, the Hebrew name is El Gabor. So God hero is the literal translation of what's happening there. Uh, he is a God who is a hero, a God whose very nature is that of a hero. So that's what it's saying. It's saying Jesus came, and not only does he do heroic things, he himself in his very nature is a hero. God in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally, with no beginning and no end, his very nature is to be heroic. We ask ourselves, why would God save us? Have you ever wondered that? Like you Christians, you say that God came down and he was born in a cave and he died on the cross and he defeated death so that we wretched sinners who are depraved and heart and mind and and we're like little worms before God in our sinfulness. Why would God come down and do all that stuff if we're so wretched, if we're so horrible, if, if sin is really as sinful as you say, preacher, then why in the world does God save us? And I'll tell you why. Because God is hero. It's what It's who he is. He loves being a hero. 
God is more glorified in saving us from our sin than he would be if Adam and Eve would have never sinned and he would have walked with Adam and Eve in eternity in that garden forever. God is more glorified in coming and saving us as sinners because his nature is hero. Another way to put it is this. Here's the revelation. The revelation that Jesus shows us in that cave when he's born is that God is love. And because he's love, he does things that love does, which is sacrifice, which is lay down his life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Why does God save us? Because he is love. He is hero. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what he does. He does it according to Ephesians 1, for the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory of what? The praise of the glory of his very nature, his loving nature, his heroic nature. This is what God did. And in eternity past, in the covenant of redemption, he said, I am going to create the heavens and the earth. He knew the end from the beginning, and he knew that he was going to allow sin and darkness so that he could sweep down and take captivity captive so that he could put us on the train of his robes so he could take us all the way back up and he could say see my glory see how great I am see how great this love is you see that's that's the gospel man that is calculated to thrill the heart is it not This knowledge of God as mighty God, as hero God, this is calculated so that we might ooze and and, and overflow in abundance of worship, glorifying God and saying, you are the valuable one. You are the great one. You are mighty and heroic. Jesus is mighty God. Thirdly, Jesus is everlasting Father. The word everlasting there is eternal. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says that Jesus is before all things. Um, It's, you know, here's the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation is this, is that Jesus being divine emptied himself and added to his divine nature human nature. And he didn't become less when he was born in that cave when he came to save us. He became more. It was like deity plus humanity. And, 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 and Jesus is eternal. He's, he has no beginning. He has no ending. He is everlasting and eternal. And he is our father. He is a father. The everlasting, the eternal father. And what that means is that, that Jesus comes as, as tender and faithful. Jesus is like a good father. A good father is tender and faithful. He's a wise trainer. He's a guardian. He's a provider and protector for his people into all of eternity. Jesus will be tender with us. He will be like a shepherd and a father to us. It says in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, this is so encouraging. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. Hallelujah. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we need him. Jesus came not because we're so great or competent. He comes because he knows we need. We are like dust. And so he comes, and he comes to be the eternal father. Now, I get confused. I bet you do too with Trinity issues here. This really confused me. Because it says that Jesus is the, is the everlasting father. Now, in other passages, I know that the son is not the father, and the father is not the son. 
but they're both God, right? So we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Distinct persons, but same essence, all God in Trinity, the triune God. But the Son is not called the Father. And the Father is not called the Son in other passages. So why is Jesus being referred to here as the eternal Father? Well, the only thing I can, I can imagine is that Jesus emphasized in his own ministry when he came, he emphasized that him and the Father are one. In fact, to give you one of many passages, but in John chapter 10, verses 27 and following, here's what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And here it is. I and the Father are one. We know from John 14, verse 6, which I don't have up on the screen, but it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen? And when we want the, God to be our Father, tender and leading us and, and, and being our guardian and provider and protector, we have to see the Father and experience the Father through our union and our victorious life in Christ. It all happens in Jesus. He's the window, the way to the Father. You know, it's kind of like if you go to a nice home, right? And you go to a nice home, and you're inside, and you're walking around, and you're like, nice art, nice TV, nice mantle, nice fireplace. Oh, I, would, I wish I had a fireplace. How many of y'all have a fireplace? Don't raise your hand. Because then I'll come over to your house every night and sit by the fire. I love fireplaces, right? But then, like, you go through the home, and then you look out the window. And the window, if it has a good view, if it, like, has a view of the mountains, or in Illinois, that beautiful horizon, just flat, just flat, beautiful flat horizon. And you walk and you look out the window and you go, that is a beautiful view. Now, what are you saying? You're saying two things. Number one, the view outside the window is great, but you're also saying that the window is great because it allows you to see the view. Isn't that right? Now, you can't experience God as Father except through the window that is Jesus. And in those terms, he is the eternal, everlasting Father. Isn't that encouraging? And he loves us, and he has compassion for us, and he, and he knows that we're limited, and he wants to feel, he wants to be the resources. Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Finally today, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I don't have enough time to really break this down. We'll get a chance to talk about this in later sermons in this very series. When we talk about Jesus being the son of David, that's what it means when it says he's the prince. If you read, you go home today and you could read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 14, really the whole chapter. And David is promised that a descendant will be born from his line. King David will have a son, and that son will rule forever from his throne. So David will have a prince. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Jesus is the prince who comes to remove uh, all peace-disturbing powers and rescues people among the nations of wars and divisions. And all of our life, we experience in this world division, ir- irreconcilable differences between us and between God. And God means bring reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
in his death on the cross, he destroyed the wall of hostility that existed between us and God, establishing peace for all who believe in Jesus. If you are not a believer in Jesus, I encourage you, believe in Christ, and you can have peace with God. But not only does he give us peace with God, he gives us peace from God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, put that on the fridge this Christmas season. Because I don't know about you, but I get a little stressed out at Christmas time, right? When I was a kid, I loved Christmas, man. I was like all about it, you know. I was like, I was like had my list for Santa and you know what I'm saying, and I just loved it. Now I'm an adult, and I don't love it as much, amen, <laughs> and like, like anxiety, and that's why I love Thanksgiving, because Thanksgiving is like my last touch with sanity before the insane season of Christmas, and here's the thing, Jesus wants to give us peace, doesn't he, and he says as we come to him, as we give him our anxieties, he can give us peace of mind, I love that, Jesus brings not only an end to our hostilities, but he establishes a relationship that's vital and real and thrilling with God that's peace. And God becomes a part of our daily life. God becomes the resource of our peace in our life. God comes into our world and removes the roots of our dysfunction. God comes into our world and gives us a message of his love and his compassion and his goodness and his light. And for those who experience his love and his light, they rejoice and they experience gladness in God. I conclude with a psalm, Psalm 72, verses 17 through 19. May his name endure forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. I can't think of a better summation of the Christmas season than that verse. Let us pray. God, thank you. You are good. You are mighty. You are wonderful. And we love you. Lord, help us as we sit back and relax, as we surrender, as we just open up our empty hands. May you do the hard work, even though we don't deserve it. We're asking you to do the hard work to give us a knowledge of you in such a way that is calculated to thrill our heart. May you reveal yourself through Jesus in this series and in our life as we believe in Jesus. May you reveal yourself and may we bring all of our incompetencies, all of our dysfunctions, all of our bondages, all of the roots of our 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 sin, that we cannot fix ourselves, that we can't rehabilitate ourselves. May we bring those to you, and may you reveal yourself to us in Christ in a life-saving, light-giving way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.